Goodness, if you can't preach after that, they need to take your license away, really. I mean, that's like the Baptist Hall of Fame that was right before I came up here. That's pretty incredible. So now I'm really super intimidated. If you would please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, and I know you were just seated, but would you stand please to honor the reading of God's Word this morning, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, may we, as a result of our time in your word today, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's always an honor to be invited to speak here at Midwestern. I'd like to thank Dr. Allen for once again inviting me uh, to be here and giving me this opportunity. It's only been really just a few years since I last preached in chapel, but they're in many respects, it seems like it is a lifetime ago. Since, since the last time I spoke here, I became a grandpa. And I'm happy to show you any pictures that you might want to see later and do not deny me the opportunity. Uh, I've, uh, I've gotten much grayer, um, at least according to my family, our church staff, and the lady who cuts my hair every single time she cuts my hair. And I'm not kidding. I happily and proudly qualify for senior discounts at certain restaurants in Johnson County. But other things have happened since I last spoke. 2020, for instance. You may have heard about it. It was in the news. The events of that year are burned into our minds and will be the subject of not paragraphs, but chapters and sections and entire books of history 100 years from now. And I'm afraid that part of what will be written by those future historians is that the American brand of Christianity made those events objectively worse 
than what they might have otherwise been. The soil for the kudzu of conspiracies and falsities that spread across the cultural landscape in 2020 was American Christianity. According to an August study in the Journal for Scientific Study of Religion, which is admittedly biased, the leading predictor of incautious COVID-19 behavior was Christian nationalism, which they conveniently defined broadly enough they could have easily said white evangelical. QAnon adherents overwhelmingly identify as Christians, and many of the capital rioters displayed Christian imagery and prayed in Jesus' name. Now, the natural defense mechanism to all of this is to say, but wait a minute, that's not real Christianity. And I hear you, but I'm afraid that the rest of our culture will not make that distinction, and we should not be so quick to make that distinction either, because these things that I just mentioned, I, I have seen in my church, I have seen in the lives of the people that I have cared for, that I have preached to now for almost 14 years. 2020 was very sobering for pastors. Now, I am not one to wear the guilt for the sins of my church members like they were my own. There are plenty enough of my own sins to keep me busy, and adding my church members' sins to my personal guilt is the quickest way I know of to burn out and to check out. But I do think it's responsible for pastors to run some self-diagnostics. People to whom we preach week in and week out were not ready for 2020. And one of the things that has consumed me over the past year is how I can better prepare the people that I shepherd for what lies ahead Significant challenges, I believe, that lie ahead precisely because of the failures of 2020. And at the risk of sounding pithy and unsophisticated, here's what I've decided I can do as a pastor to help my people prepare for the next 2020. Show them Jesus. Show them Jesus, the real Jesus. Because the Jesus they think they see has convinced them that he's infinitely concerned with their individual rights. The Jesus they think they see doesn't see the sanctifying benefit of trials. The Jesus they think they see has told them he can't survive in our country if the political chips don't fall just so. But that's not the biblical Jesus. If we want our church members to prepare better for what is to come, we must shepherd them in a way that shows them Jesus. That is why I have chosen Colossians 3, 1 through 17 for my text today. It's a text with which I have lived for a year. It is a text that I have been working to memorize and upon which I meditate when I go on my morning runs. It's become my lifeboat really. It's become the verse that I'm most likely to cite to my family if they are feeling anxious. And it's challenged me as a pastor to do three things that I want to share with you this morning. First, it has challenged me to model for them a Christ-energized mindset. A Christ-energized mindset. Corrupted understandings of Jesus are nothing new and have been wreaking havoc on the church since the very beginning. In every single example that you can find in the New Testament, a familiar pattern emerges. A corrupt Christology creates a graceless salvation and results 
and an enslaved church. And this was certainly the case for the Colossians. The Colossians had been infiltrated by people who were teaching a diminished Jesus. Now, Paul never explicitly explains the specifics of this diminishment because his audience already knew what those specifics were, and so we are left somewhat to guess. But the two best guesses share a common theme, a syncretized conception of Jesus, Jesus plus something else, and in the case of the Colossians, either Jewish legalism or a proto-Gnostic kind of wisdom. And here's the thing. A diminished Jesus is not powerful enough to center and to ground our lives. In the Colossian church, people were searching for meaning, finding their place in a world in which there was opposition against them. And so this diminished Jesus, not enough to hold them steady, to anchor them, had to have something added to them. And in the Colossian church, it resulted in a highly ascetic religion that defines salvation by the do nots, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In other words, a corrupt Christology had created a graceless salvation and resulted in an enslaved church. So Paul attacks this corrupt Christology with some of his most Christ-magnifying words he ever penned. This Paul says to them in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is the Jesus that I preached to you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In short, Paul is saying that the Jesus I preached to you doesn't need anything else. He's enough. And then he makes an absolutely stunning statement about salvation through that Jesus in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in Him. Here's what's so stunning about that statement. This is the only time in the writings of Paul that the word received has a personal object. When Paul uses it elsewhere, it is with words like teaching or gospel or word. And in those instances, received references the actual message of Christ. But here, Paul is saying that the Colossians haven't just received the message of Christ. He is saying that they have actually received Christ. And the construction of the title he gives Christ is telling. It's not his usual Lord Jesus Christ, but is instead Christ Jesus the Lord. The Jesus who is Lord. Emphasis on our Lord, which is meant to drive our our minds back to the Jesus described in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Christ Jesus, whom you've received into yourself, is that Lord. You have done more than just internalize a message about that Lord. You have internalized that Lord. You have received into yourselves that person. 
So in light of that reality, Paul is pleading in Colossians 3 for his readers to set their minds, to fix their brains, make as their singular focus the Lord who is the image of the invisible God, who is before all things, who created all things and holds all things together and is the head of the church and who is the firstborn from the dead and who is preeminent and who is the fullness of God and who reconciled all things by his blood. He says, set their minds there and then, then you tell me what your world looks like. Your perspective about what is truly important, if your mind is set there on that Jesus, will shift heavenward, kingdomward. That which will occupy your thoughts will not be a fallen world order of this world, but will be the kingdom of which we are now a part because we have received the king. We will be endlessly consumed with the rule of Christ in our lives and relentlessly hopeful for the day when the world is confronted with the magnificence of his person and we are revealed in our true identity as members of the royal family. How would 2020 have gone in our churches if our people had really seen that Jesus? Had they fixed their minds on that Jesus? I'm afraid that this Jesus is missing from our preaching. And the irony is not lost on me that this Jesus is missing from the preaching of my generation, which is the first generation of preachers and pastors and leaders to benefit from the conservative resurgence. We've taught our congregations to weigh the shortcomings of liberal theology against the glories of conservative theology, equipped them to battle the relentless creep of liberalism, taught them how to determine the number of complementarians that dance on the head of a pen, and how to dunk on the fools on Twitter who don't know the right answer. But we've not shown them, taught them, that Jesus. And without the glories of that Jesus energizing their minds, they have decided that they need to add something to him something shiny. They've religiously fixed their minds on social media conspiracies and political messiahs and progressive boogeymen, and it's made them anxious, angry, and defeated. Not very much like Jesus at all, but exactly like those upon whom they have fixed their minds. In other words, a corrupt Christology has created a graceless salvation and resulted in an enslaved church, and 2020, when it happened, swamped them. So we need to both preach and model a Christ-energized mindset. We need to step into the pulpits every week and point them to this Jesus not use the pulpit to identify with all of the angst that they have felt, to not communicate that we are more in tune with what the newspaper has said than we are with what the Holy Word of God says. We need to make sure we are preaching and proclaiming a Jesus upon whom they can fix their attention and energized by that mindset, properly assess what is going on in the world around them. Next, Paul challenges his readers to model a Christ-enabled mortification. 
The average Baptist will amen loudly the proclamation that we are saved by grace alone. But the average Baptist doesn't understand this, that we are saved and kept by grace alone. So we bow our knee in salvation like our battle with sin depends all on Jesus, and then we go about our life once we stand up like our battle with sin depends all on us. But our war with sin, according to Paul in these verses, is an outworking of our identity as recipients of that Jesus, in the power of that Jesus. That's exactly what Paul is getting at in verses 5 through 12. Let's look at some of them again. Look at verse 5 of Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, had Paul stopped there, it would sound very much like his spin on do not handle, taste, or touch, and that the disciplined ascetics had it right. But he says this, verse 7, In these two you once walked when you were living in them. Paul says that everything that he has just listed was characteristic of those against whom the wrath of God was directed. Meaning what? That the things he lists are not consistent with who they are, not who they aspire to be, but who they are, because they have received that Jesus. So what he is calling the Colossians to is a life characterized by the identity that they have received from that Jesus, which is incongruent with the kind of life that he has just characterized. That becomes even clearer as he continues. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. See that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Notice the play on the old self versus the new self. It's helpful for me to think of these verses as something of an amplification of Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul is saying to the Colossians and to the Galatians that the war with sin was won at the cross. And what remains simply is living in the power of Christ's death in putting to death sin in our own lives. And it is this process, this mortification of sin, that we need to model in our own lives and proclaim in our preaching. There are two surefire ways to build a self-righteous congregation, and I've done them both. So take good notes. I'm an experienced practitioner. First... If you want to build a self-righteous congregation, only preach to them about other people's sins. Rail against the sins out there, but never preach about the sins in here or in here. Second, you can tell them that they can battle sin with more information and new life strategies. In other words, tell them that the key to Christ-likeness is to not handle, taste, or touch. If you do either one of those two things, 
it's going to create one of two outcomes, one of which Paul warns about in the book of Colossians chapter 2, something the King James translate as will worship. We begin to think we're doing so good because we so underestimate sin in our lives that we begin to kind of celebrate ourselves wherever we go. But it's more likely to just make people feel so helpless in the battle of sin that they just give up. And it may be that some of the people we're missing in our churches have just given up. So instead, show them Jesus. Teach them to gaze on the majesty of the Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, who is before all things, who created all things and hold all things together, and is the head of the church, who is the firstborn of the dead, who is the preeminent, who is the fullness of God, and who reconciled all things by His blood. Teach them to walk hand in hand with that Jesus who they have received, and then ask them to tell you how they view their battle with sin. Because in the power of that Jesus, with the victory that He already won at the cross, we have everything we need to move more and more into the likeness of Christ. Having died for our sin by the blood of His atonement, He stands ready to root out its strongholds in our lives by the power of His resurrection. There are three things in Colossians 3, 1-17 through that Paul encourages us to model if we're going to show Jesus in our lives and to our people. First, we must model a Christ-energized mindset, a worldview driven by fixing our minds on an exalted Christ. We must also model a Christ-enabled mortification, war with sin in our lives by the power of our identity in Christ, and then finally, model a Christ-exalting maturation. I want to ask two important questions here. And then look to verses seven or 12 through 17 for answers. So here's the first question. How do we become like Christ? And then the second is this. What is Christ's likeness? The answer to the first one, how do we become like Christ, has already been made clear by Paul in the previous verses. Having fixed our eyes on the one from whom we draw our identity, we clothe ourselves in that identity. In verse 10, we are told to put on the new self, and here again, and in the imperative in verse 12, we are told to put on the characteristic of the new self, just as we have taken off the characteristics of the old self. So to put it simply, we are to become like Christ by making a radical commitment to grow into that identity. We are God's chosen ones. We are holy and beloved. And as we live in the reality of that, we become more like Jesus. And I'm afraid most of our people believe that becoming like Christ is achieved not through this radical commitment to connecting with Him on a personal daily level, but through the transfer of information. Think with me. Most of what we call discipleship in Southern Baptist churches are curriculum-based studies where the goal is learning and the assumed outcome is being. And yet, some of the most knowledgeable Christians I know struggled spectacularly through the events of the past year. Apparently, at some point along the way, perhaps through my preaching, they came to understand set your minds where Christ is as no stuff about Jesus. Their doctrine was sound. Their reflection of Christ was not. Now, it's not my purpose to set up a false dichotomy between pure doctrine and pure devotion. Paul has gone to great lengths 
in Colossians to make clear that you can't have one without the other. Instead, my point is to point out the false equivalency between pure doctrine and Christ-likeness. The ability to parse out and defend faith is one side of the equation, and it is utterly useless when it is not directly tied to the goal of seeing Christ more clearly for the purpose of reflecting Christ more clearly. So the answer to the first question, how do we become like Christ, is by knowing Him and living in the power of what we know. So now the second question, what is Christ-likeness? Paul has already talked about it in terms of what it is not. It's not sexual immorality and impurity and passion and covetousness and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lies. But as Paul closes this section, he begins to talk gloriously about what it is. Paul says that as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, as those who have died and have had their lives hidden with Christ in God, Continue to manifest Christ's generosity of spirit and grace toward everyone in all of our interactions with people. Because the Christ from whose life we draw ours was gracious and kind. In a world where everybody's screaming at one another, there may be nothing more countercultural that any of us can do, more Christ-like than simply not be a self-righteous jerk. But then Paul moves from personal behavioral choices to talk about living out that identity within the body. Look again at verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ giving thanks to God the Father through Him. As a church, the life of Christ should manifest itself in being at peace with one another within the body, to act like we're going to spend eternity with people. I did an exercise last year in my devotional reading. I've carried it into 2021. Rather than read little bite-sized passages and uh, reflect on them, I I read large chunks. That's what I did. So when I started getting toward the end of my Bible reading plan for the year and got to the epistles, I would read an epistle a day, just going through it like that. And something began to just kind of come out a solution that I'd never seen had I not taken everything so high. I began to see over and over again among all of the biblical writers, how often Christ-likeness was measured by love for one another within the body of Christ. I mean, it becomes apparent that one of the key expectations of the apostles was that a Christ-directed life is going to manifest itself in a Christ-saturated love for one another. And so Paul says, grow into that having fixed your mind where it needs to be, having warred with Jesus in you to put to death that which does not honor Him. Set as your goal in life as the holy and beloved of God to grow into that identity that you were given at the moment of salvation. Now let me close quickly with some perspective. In just two months, I'll turn 55. 
I turned 30, didn't register. Turned 40, no big deal. Turned 50, handled it like a champ. Turning 55, I've gone, huh, huh. For the first time in my life, I can envision what retirement looks like. Uh, Up until this segment of my life, retirement was a period of time in my life where I'd have a car like the Jetsons. It was so far out there that it didn't have any real live impact on my life. But now, turning 55 this year, I can begin to see that there will come a time that will be on me quickly where the season, the unique season of being the pastor of a local church will be past me. And while I'll preach as long as I'm able as an interim pastor or as a supply preacher, that unique season of being a full-time pastor is going to go by quickly. And the reason I know that is because the last 25 years of being a vocational pastor has gone by quickly. So my focus now is greater than it's ever been. What will I want to look back on? I pray I'll look back on multiple campuses started locally and multiple autonomous churches planted locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally because that's the vision that I and our elders have been called to steward for our church. I pray I'll be able to look back on fruitful preparation of our leadership to not miss a beat with my exit. All of those things are very, very important. But here is what is the most important thing, that I can one day stand before God and say, Sir, I showed them Jesus. And they saw Jesus, and they lived in that Jesus. And anything else that I accomplish as a pastor is largely trivia. Same goes for you. If your goal is to be the next great thing in church planning, go get an MBA and start a business. If if your goal is to be the next great cultural commentator, go get a political science degree and get a government job. But if your goal, if your passion is to point people to a Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, who is before all things, who created all things and hold all things together and is the head of the church and who is the firstborn from the dead and who is preeminent and who is the fullness of God and who reconciled all things by his blood. And to let people know that their very lives can become vehicles through which that Jesus lives his life, then that thing's called being a pastor. And that's a good gig. And that's worth giving your life too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to just share what's on my heart, Uh, something that is a unique opportunity for pastors, not constrained by a preaching program in a church. Opportunities like this give me a chance to just put down in writing what you've been talking to me about. And now, Father, having done that, I am accountable to everyone who's just heard me, most of all accountable to you, to live out what I've talked about here this morning. Help me be a person, help me be a pastor that shows Jesus. And it's in the name of that Jesus I pray. Amen.